Please turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are starting this three-chapter section of chapters 12 through 14, and we're looking at the first three verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So follow along with me as I read those three verses to you. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were being led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be spiritual? What are the gifts of the Spirit? How does our giftedness or our lack of giftedness affect our standing in the church? Who is the Holy Spirit, and how does he interact with the people of God? Is there a right way and a wrong way to use the gifts that the Spirit of God has bestowed upon us? In the next three chapters, these questions and more will be addressed by the Apostle Paul. And we've seen in chapter 1 that the Corinthians were a very gifted congregation. And though they were very gifted of the Spirit, they were also very ignorant of the Spirit. We have seen time and again as we've gone through this book, the Apostle Paul needing to correct misunderstandings. They were very enthusiastic about their giftedness. We will see that in the chapters ahead. But they did not understand the purpose for which they were to exercise these gifts that the Spirit had given them. Not only that, but they began to forget who it was who had supplied them with those gifts in the first place. Pride makes us do that. We forget the giver, and we begin entertaining the idea that I have what I have based on some merit found within myself. Remember what Paul said to these believers back in chapter 4 and verse 7. He said to them, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's the kind of thinking that they are living by. And if we're not careful, we can let our own giftedness go to our heads. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that our giftedness gives us some kind of exalted status within the church. We can fall into the trap of thinking that because I have this gift as opposed to some other gift, that means that I am spiritually superior to someone else who does not have the gift that I have. We can begin to think that we deserve more than what we're getting, and we can begin to make demands of others that cater to our own wants and plans. We conveniently forget that before God found us, we were spiritually dead. And apart from his grace, we would still be spiritually dead. We are not where we are by our own doing if we are believers in Christ. It is all his doing. Pride is an ugly crown for a sinner saved by grace to wear. When we come to verse 1 of this chapter... We're going to see, we're going to review the spiritual ignorance that pride has brought 
into the lives of these believers. We're going to see the spiritual ignorance of pride. Their pride has brought them to this place. Look at what verse, or what, what verse 1 says. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. They are in a state of ignorance, and their pride has brought them there. Now that first phrase, now concerning, we've seen that before in this letter. The first time we saw it was back in chapter 7 and verse 1. That was the first time it popped up. And there Paul said, now concerning the things about which you wrote. There Paul indicated that what he was about to say was in response to something that the Corinthians had written in a letter to him. Later on in that chapter, verse 25, Paul repeats the phrase, now concerning virgins. Apparently that had come up in their letter and Paul was going to address that. We saw it a third time in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. And we know he would go on for three chapters talking about that. Chapter 12 and verse 1 is the fourth time that this phrase is used. And it indicates to us that Paul is likely addressing another area of concern that these believers brought up in their letter to Paul. And the concern was regarding spiritual gifts or spiritual persons. And since we don't have their letter to Paul, we don't know exactly what their question was. All we have is Paul's reply. And so it can sometimes be difficult to understand as we go through these three chapters the fullness of what Paul is meaning because we're only hearing one side of the conversation. But we shouldn't be discouraged about that because God and his providence have given us everything we need to live a godly life. So don't get too hung up on that. We have here what we need to have to follow the Lord. So Paul says in this verse, concerning spiritual gifts or persons, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Apparently in their letter to Paul, a level of ignorance had been revealed in what they said to him. Regarding the Spirit, there was a certain amount of ignorance in these believers, and Paul wants to fix that. He doesn't want them to continue in that state of ignorance. Now, when Paul said this, we can imagine that it may have annoyed these believers. Ignorant. That is not how they viewed themselves. As we've gone through this letter, that's not how they view themselves at all. They view themselves as enlightened, mature, spiritual, and to some extent for good reason. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 4. Remember how Paul opened this letter to them. Remember his affirmation of them. Chapter 1, verse 4. There Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a very gifted congregation. They were enriched in Christ in all word and all knowledge, and they were not lacking in any gift. They had every gift that the Spirit had to offer. 
but unfortunately, rather than use their knowledge and their giftedness in order to grow in Christ-like humility, they have instead become what? Puffed up, arrogant, proud. They thought themselves wise, when instead they had become quite foolish, because the wisdom that they were subscribing to was not God's wisdom. Remember, we saw this in chapters 2 and 3. It was the world's wisdom. That's what they're walking in. The world's wisdom of self-exaltation rather than Christ's wisdom of cross-carrying selflessness. These Corinthians considered themselves quite spiritual, quite mature in their walk with Christ. And Paul has been showing them throughout this entire letter that that estimation of themselves is totally wrong. Remember chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. There Paul said, And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not, or even now you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? We've seen Paul repeatedly ask them that humbling question, do you not know? In other words, there's something they ought to know, but now they don't know it, and it's on them. The blame falls on them for not knowing it. Paul is asking, don't you know? He said that many times, revealing that the knowledge that they gained at their conversion has been squandered. And like a muscle that you don't use properly has atrophied, and now they are ignorant. They're like Solomon, who for all his wisdom and giftedness had become a fool by clinging too much to the world instead of to God. And again, we've seen this throughout this entire letter. Chapter 1 told us that not only had they received knowledge from God, but they'd been given every spiritual gift. And it's not hard to imagine what these proud and delusional believers have done with these gifts. What have they done with everything else that they've been given? They've turned it into an instrument for self-exaltation. Throughout this letter, we've seen that. Chapter 1, we found them exalting themselves by trying to ride the coattails of their favorite teacher. Chapters 2 and 3 found them exalting themselves by chasing worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. Chapter 4 found them exalting themselves by thinking that they had already reached the pinnacle of sanctification and that they were kings who no longer needed Paul's instruction. Chapter 5 found them exalting themselves by not dealing with the gross immorality of a sinning member. Chapter 6 found them exalting themselves by hauling one another to secular court and by thinking that sexual immorality wouldn't hurt them. Chapters 8 through 10 found them exalting themselves by disregarding the spiritual well-being of weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 11 found them exalting themselves by refusing to share with poorer believers during their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And what has been the result of all of this self-exalting behavior? It's division, quarreling, jealousy, strife. Now, what do we think they were doing with spiritual gifts? 
If anything gave them the opportunity to make a name for themselves and to elevate their status within the church, would it not be through miraculous spiritual gifts? And this seems to be the problem that Paul addresses in these three chapters. And there's things in these three chapters that indicate that, a number of things. For example, Paul will spend the rest of this chapter emphasizing the unity of the body of Christ and how every member has need of the other and that every gift is given by the Spirit for the good, not of the self, but of the whole body of Christ. Not only that, but what is the centerpiece of these three chapters? It's the love chapter. Love does not seek its own. Later on in chapter 14 and in verse 12, Paul will say this to them, So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. It seems that their zeal for the gifts comes not from a desire to build up the church, likely a desire to build up themselves. Later on in that chapter, verses 26 to 33, Paul will need to give instructions to them for the proper use of these gifts so that there will not be confusion and disorder during worship. Confusion and disorder are symptoms of an every man for himself mentality. People speaking over one another, people not giving room to others to exercise their gifts. And then chapter 14, verses 36 to 38, Paul has worked his way up to the final rebuke regarding these matters. He says in verse 36, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it arrived to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone remains ignorant about this, he is ignored. All of these features, plus more that I have not mentioned, in these three chapters seem designed to squash pride and to bring humble unity. I want you to notice two words there in chapter 14, verses 37 and 38. The word spiritual and the word ignorant. These are the same words that we found in verse 1 of chapter 12. These two passages, chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 14, verses 37 to 38, they are the two bookends around these three chapters. And these two bookends indicate to us the purpose for which Paul is writing what he does in each of these chapters. Paul wants these believers to have a proper understanding of true spirituality. He wants them to truly understand the things of the Spirit of God. He wants to remove also their ignorance so that the unity of the body of Christ will flourish. And in that rebuke at the end of chapter 14, Paul indicates that if by the end of this three-chapter discussion they are still ignorant, that indicates that their ignorance is a willful ignorance and he says they are to be ignored they're not submitting themselves to the truth of god they are bringing division and so they are to be ignored this is similar to what paul says in titus chapter 3 verses 10 through 11 there paul said reject a factious man 
after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. These three chapters are Paul's final warning to those who are bringing division. Their pride has brought them to this state of ignorance. We must beware of pride. When we seek our own advancement rather than the glory of Christ, rather than the good of one another, we begin to descend into spiritual ignorance. When the word of God, which was written by the Spirit of God, is taken seriously, pride cannot grow. This book is like a pesticide to pride. It kills pride. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to kill pride and to exalt who? Christ, not us. That's his ministry. Turn with me to John chapter six or 16, John's Gospel chapter 16. I want you to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This supports all that Paul is going to say in these three chapters. Look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. What is the Holy Spirit's ministry? To glorify Christ, not to glorify ourselves. So if you and I begin to desire to exalt ourselves, we will necessarily seek to ignore who? The Holy Spirit, as he truly is, because he exalts Christ and he humbles man. If we want to exalt self rather than Christ, we are going to ignore the Holy Spirit. We are going to ignore what he has said in this book. And instead, we will turn the Holy Spirit into a figment of our own imagination, turning him into a genie who exists for our own selfish purposes. And the gifts that he gives, we will pervert and turn those into instruments of exalting self rather than building up the body. Pride leads to spiritual ignorance because this book humbles so if we are exalted in pride, we are going to ignore this book because this book speaks of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he calls us to do what? Follow him. Take up our cross and follow him. And a proud man and a proud woman are unwilling to do this, and so they will ignore the truth. A proper understanding of the things of the Spirit of God 
will not lead to pride, but will lead to the humble service of one another. So these believers' ignorance has been brought on by their pride. And Paul doesn't want them to remain there. This brings us to verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, in the first half of verse 3, we will see the spiritual ignorance of unbelief. The spiritual ignorance of unbelief. To begin removing their pride-induced ignorance and to set the tone for what he's going to say throughout the rest of these three chapters, Paul wants these believers to consider their own past experience. He wants them to consider their own past experience. Look at verse 2. Paul says, You know that when you were pagans or Gentiles, you were being led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Paul wants these Corinthians, who again, consider themselves so wise, he wants them to remember who they used to be. They were like brain-dead cattle, being led to mute idols, to worship blocks of wood and stone and metal which cannot speak. That's who they were. That's who they were. If we return to the Old Testament, we will see that the Old Testament prophets used to speak very bluntly, we may say, about idolaters. They had strong words for idolaters. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. I want you to see one of these passages. Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 20. Isaiah is speaking of idolaters here. Verse 12. The man crafts iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals forming it with hammers and working it with his powerful arm. He also gets hungry and has no power. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another crafts wood. So he's talking about the process of making an idol. Another crafts wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He makes it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the glory of man, so that it may sit in a house. In order to cut cedars for himself, he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also kindles a fire to bake bread. He also works to produce a god and worships it. You see the irony there. He plants a tree and it grows and he cuts it down one part of the wood to warm himself by and the other part to make a god to bow down and worship. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now listen closely to these next few verses. Verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he, God, 
has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they will have no insight. No one causes this to return to his heart, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, in other words, they don't get the fact that, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, and he cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You see the the darkened understanding. There's no ability in the idolater to understand the significance of what is happening. He is not able to rescue himself from his own ignorance. That was these Corinthians. They're boasting about where they are, forgetting from where they came. If they remembered where they came from, they would not be boasting about where they are. In our culture today, we like to think of ourselves as more advanced than that. We're too enlightened to fall down before mute idols. In fact, we're too enlightened to believe in any god whatsoever. Atheistic evolutionists don't even understand that they've simply exchanged one piece of foolishness for another. The conclusive conclusive evidence for God is staring them in the face every single day. Every time they open their eyes and look upon God's green earth or glance up at the night sky to see orbs of blazing fire strewn across the cosmos or when they sit down at the dinner table with their children, all creation screams, God made this. And the idolater actually has more sense than they do because at least the idolater acknowledges the need to worship something bigger than himself. Only in the attempt, he ends up worshiping something less than himself. But the atheist simply falls into worshiping himself without even realizing it. He didn't even cause his own existence, and yet he sees fit to worship himself. As Christians, we've been rescued from that darkness. But if we're not careful, pride can cause us to fall into a similar folly. We can look at the knowledge that we have come to grasp, and we can recognize the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us, and we can become proud of it. And though we'd never say that we're responsible for what God has graciously given to us, we live as though that's the case. We live as though we've arrived where we are by our own wisdom and our own power. And we conveniently forget that when we were unbelievers, We didn't even have the spiritual horsepower necessary to arrive at the conclusion that there's a God who made me and that God owns me and I owe my life to him. We forget how dead we were. We forget that we cannot possibly be the reason for our own salvation. Dead men don't raise themselves. We needed someone to call us forth from the grave of our spiritual death. Back to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul begins the first half of this verse saying this, Therefore I make known to you that no one, speaking by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed, or Jesus is anathema. 
Now, this part of verse 3 is very much debated, and it's hard to get a handle on it. Some suggest that the Corinthians were actually saying these things within the context of their corporate worship, that they were being unknowingly inspired by demons rather than the Spirit of God to say Jesus is cursed. But there's nothing in the context of these three chapters that really points to that as the problem. The problem spoken of in these three chapters is not the use of demonic, counterfeit, spiritual gifts, but the improper use of genuine gifts. That's the problem. So what is Paul doing in verse 3 here? Well, in verse 2, Paul pointed them to their own experience as Gentiles, something they already knew, they had firsthand experience of. They could affirm, yeah, that was me. But here in verse 3, the first half of verse 3, Paul seems to be directing their attention to someone else's experience as unbelievers, which would explain why he makes it known to them. They didn't have firsthand experience. This wasn't their testimony. So he's making known to them about someone else's testimony. Now, who would have experienced this as an unbeliever? Who would be most likely to utter those words as an unbeliever? Jesus is cursed. Well, think about Paul when he was traveling the ancient world preaching the gospel. Who caused all the uproar every time he came to a city and preached the gospel? It was the Jews. The Jews. Not the Gentiles, the Jews for the most part. To be anathematized, that was to be subjected to the curse of God. It was to be devoted to destruction. And this was a concept that the Jews were well familiar with. The law of God, remember, as they were poised to enter the promised land, the law of God commanded them to do what to the Canaanites? To wipe them all out. They were anathematized. The Canaanites were under a curse. They were devoted to destruction. In fact, the city of Jericho, the city itself, was anathematized. They were to destroy the entire city. They were to not take any loot from that city. But when Achan, an Israelite, took some of that loot and brought it home, he himself fell under the anathema. He himself fell under the curse and was stoned. So the Jews are very familiar with this concept of anathema, cursing someone. In fact, I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 23 to continue to illustrate how familiar, how, how much anathema was a part of their vocabulary. Acts chapter 23 and verse 12. This passage is a plot by the Jews to kill Paul. Chapter 23, verse 12. It says, now when it was day, the Jews, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, an anathema, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Apparently, these Jews viewed Paul as cursed, something, somebody to be gotten rid of, to purge the land of. And so much was this their conviction that they willingly accepted a curse upon themselves. They said the curse will fall on us if we fail to do this. That's what they thought about Paul, who preached Jesus. 
They thought that about Paul because of who Paul preached. And if they thought that about Paul, what do we think they were saying about Jesus? Jesus is cursed. He should have been crucified. So this is something an unbelieving Jew would readily say. After Paul had come to Corinth with the gospel, these Corinthians in in the city, they may have heard Jews utter this, this phrase a number of times. In Acts 18, when Paul brings the gospel to a synagogue in Corinth. Verse 6 of that chapter says that they resisted and they blasphemed. They blasphemed in response to Paul preaching Jesus. Likely they weren't saying, curse God of the Old Testament. Likely they were saying, curse this Jesus whom you are proclaiming to us. The Jews considered themselves the enlightened people of God. They considered themselves the people of the Spirit of God since the Spirit of God had moved so mightily in their past. They thought of themselves as spiritual superiors to the Gentiles. And Paul, by saying, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, Paul is showing that unbelieving Jews are just as spiritually dead and incapable of the true worship of God as the pagan Gentiles. They were so spiritually blind that they pronounced curses upon their own Messiah. We won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Do you remember the Apostle Paul speaking of the veil that lies over the Jew's heart? That when Christ is proclaimed, they don't get it. And it's not until they come to Christ that the veil is removed and they understand. Paul himself used to be an unbelieving Jew. Now he was a believing Jew, but he used to be an unbelieving Jew. And as a Pharisee who hated Jesus and persecuted Jesus' people, no doubt this phrase left Paul's lips a number of times. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says that he was formerly a blasphemer. And as the perfect Pharisee, who would Paul be blaspheming? Not the God of the Old Testament, but Jesus, the Jesus he hated. Paul himself, the apostle who had founded the Corinthian church, the one who seemed to tower over others as a spiritual giant, he himself had been devoid of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he himself had no grounds for boasting. So we've seen the spiritual ignorance of pride. We've seen the spiritual ignorance of unbelief. Now we're going to see the removal of that ignorance, the spiritual revelation of God's Spirit. We see this in the second half of verse 3. Look at what Paul says there. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is is Lord. That is the basic confession of every true Christian. What does Romans chapter 10 verse 9 say? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as who? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the essence of Christianity. 
In the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the Greek-speaking Jews at the time, in that Greek Old Testament, the name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah, that's translated Lord in the Greek Old Testament. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is God incarnate. The God of the Old Testament, Jesus is that God. And for you to confess that in the ancient world, in that first century, that was to drastically mark yourself out from Jews and pagans. Because to say that Jesus is Lord, that was rank blasphemy in the ears of a Jew. When Stephen confessed Jesus as Lord, what did the Jews do? They, they stopped their ears and screamed and ran at him. And to confess Jesus as Lord in the eyes of pagans was to call into question your own commitment to Lord Caesar. Now when Paul says here that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit, he obviously means more than simply parroting the words. Anybody can say those three words, whether they have the Spirit or not. A parrot can parrot those three words. No, he's talking about confessing it with all your heart. He's talking about recognizing that you do not own the rights to your own life, but Jesus does. He's talking about desiring to have Jesus rule over every aspect of your life rather than rule it yourself or have anybody else rule it. That is something that no one can do except by the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here today and you're confessing Jesus as your Lord, you did not arrive at that confession by your own wisdom or under the power of your own spiritual steam. Because what did you used to be? You were dead, remember? You were spiritually bankrupt, remember? Everything in you wanted to rebel against God, not bow before him and confess him as Lord. So if you this morning are confessing that Jesus is Lord, you are doing so only because the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. And he has enabled you to take those first spiritual breaths of repentance and faith which were expressed in the confession, Jesus is Lord. This is why when Jesus on that night was speaking to Nicodemus about how one can enter into the kingdom of God, this is why he used the analogy of birth. Think about when you were born physically. Before you could see the light of day, before you could take a breath of air and utter your first cries, before that happens, you have to be what? Born. And it's the same with our spiritual rebirth. Before I can see the ugliness of my sin, before I can see the beauty of Christ, before I can exercise repentance and faith, I have to be born again. We must be given a new heart that is even capable of exercising repentance and faith. Otherwise, we just won't come to him. Before we can confess sincerely that Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit must impart new life into us so that we can even make that confession. Being born again is purely by the sovereign grace of the Almighty Holy Spirit. 
Before you were physically born, you didn't have some kind of conference, you and your, I don't know what you might have thought you were before you were conceived, but you didn't have any kind of conference with your parents in order to make that happen. It happened apart from your own will, apart from your own choosing. It just happened to you. And that was the way with our spiritual rebirth. We weren't laying there dead in our sins and saying, you know, God, this grave is a little uncomfortable. I want to follow you. No, we were dead. We didn't want him at all. And yet, inexplicably, somehow, I was awakened to the understanding that I'm a sinner, that I've offended the holy God, and I want to be forgiven, and I want to live for him. How did that happen? It was nothing of myself. It was the Holy Spirit reaching inside of me and ripping out my heart of stone and putting a beating heart of flesh there that responds to him in repentance and faith. That's how it happens. John chapter 1 verse 13 says that those who believe in God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God gets all the credit for our salvation while we get none. We believe only because God granted us to believe. We confess Jesus as Lord only because the Spirit has given us a new heart that willingly and gladly affirms and confesses and proclaims him as such. This is why we pray to God for the salvation of others. Because we instinctively, as believers, understand that only God can bring that person to faith. Now, how do these three verses of chapter 12 prepare the Corinthians for what Paul's going to spend the next three chapters telling them? Well, if they can be reminded of the, of, of the truth that there is not a single person who can make even the most basic Christian confession without the Holy Spirit, then they will realize that every Christian, no matter what they're gifting, is just as spiritual as any other Christian. Every Christian is a walking miracle. And if you've been gifted by the Spirit to simply help, and that help comes in the form of stacking chairs for the pancake breakfast afterwards, if, if you're a chair stacker and that's what the Holy Spirit has gifted you to be and you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, then you are every bit as spiritual as the most influential preacher or evangelist the country has ever seen if that person also confesses Jesus is Lord. Spirituality is not measured by your giftedness. Spirituality is measured by the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. The same spirit who gifts someone to teach is the very same spirit who gifts others to help. The same almighty Holy Spirit dwells within each Christian. There is no ranking of spirituality among believers because there's only one Holy Spirit indwelling each believer. There's one last thing to consider. You can be the best teacher in the world You can be the best speaker. You can be the best whatever. But if you are unwilling to sincerely confess that Jesus is the master of your life, then all your gifts mean nothing. They mean nothing because you're still dead 
in your sin and headed for hell. The most forgotten chair stacker who gladly owns Christ as his Lord is infinitely more spiritual than you are because he is alive while you are dead. He has God Almighty living inside of him while you do not. If you have not yet turned from your sin, if you have not yet bowed your knee to Jesus Christ in faith, asking him to save you and to rule you, then you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. You need the Holy Spirit to come to you and to make you alive. You need him to open up your blind eyes so that you can see. You need him to draw you to faith in Jesus. And because you need that, all you can do is beg God for his mercy. Ask him to save you through what Jesus did to save sinners by his death and resurrection. God always answers the prayer for mercy. So pray to him.